are listening to Graceway's weekly message podcast. We hope that this message encourages you to know and enjoy God, find friends, discover your purpose, and make a difference in your community. Enjoy the message. Graceway, what's happening? How are you today? Are you good? You sound a little tired. Are you tired? You're not tired. Okay. I thought maybe since the Chiefs game was tomorrow, you guys weren't into it today. You're happy to be here? All right. I'm happy to be here with you. If you're a guest, thanks for being here. My name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor. We're honored to have you join us. If you're watching online, thank you for that. Come on, church. Show some love to our first-time guests. We're grateful. We're grateful. We're grateful. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, put your finger in Acts chapter 2, go over to Acts chapter 4, we'll be in both spots today. I'm going to read our text, I'm going to pray, and then we got a lot to get to, so I need you to work, I need you to talk back to me, I need you to take good notes, we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit's going to do His thing, okay? All right. Acts 2 and verse 42 through 47, talking about the early church and the description of them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And they go over to Acts 4 and verse 32. More description. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And they had everything in common. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Let's pray. God, today I uh, want us to be reintroduced to the early church I want us to be reintroduced to what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is on the move in a community and in a congregation. And Lord, I I want us to be inspired and I want us to be proud of uh, being a part of this family. And so God, uh, I've done my best to be prepared, but I know it's not enough. We need your Holy Spirit to speak to us. There's the potential for some controversy today, so I pray, God, that you'll keep the enemy away, keep division away, keep anything away that would get our eyes off of you and your glory, and we ask you for it uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever read through the book of Acts and thought to yourself, yeah, this is cool, but why do I care, right? Well, like, why, why did the Holy Spirit go to great lengths to give us descriptions of what the early church was like and who, who was a part of it and what happened? And maybe more than that, have you ever wondered uh, how, how different our church experience is to their church experience? Have you ever thought, you know, some of the stuff that I just read, I I never heard of any church in Kansas City or Missouri or Kansas or the United States doing those things. Like, are we supposed to, are we supposed to do those things? Is is that, is that what God's calling us to do? And so uh, this past, this week and the last two weeks, if you kind of want to know what I believe about the church, uh, it's been a little bit of a mini series, starting with the Great Commission 
going to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and now what we're going to talk about here today. I'm going to call today the blueprint, because I, I do think that the principles that we see in the book of Acts, we are supposed to grapple with. We're supposed to grapple with them in our context, and I, want to, I just want to tell you some stories today about the early church. I want to tell you who they were and what they believed and what happened to them, and my heart in it uh, is to inspire you to inspire you of what a church can be like, and my heart is to introduce you, because I don't think a lot of us really understand what our family tree looks like in the church, and I think that if you do understand it, you'll be proud to be a part of the church. You'll be proud to be a part of the church. I want you to be proud to be a Christian. I want you to be proud to be a part of the church. There's so much negativity and bad news that has happened maybe in your life, maybe in our lives, maybe in the news about the church. I just want you to know that being a part of the church is an incredible privilege, an incredible thing. And I want to introduce it to you that way. I did a lot of reading. Uh, I'm going to reference a lot of different authors, uh, guys like uh, Alan Kreider, Larry Hurtado, Tim Keller, Robert Wuthnow, Scott Sauls, Rodney Stark. I go on and on and on. But just know that a lot of this is not original with me, and a lot of it is original with me, and that my heart for you is just that you enjoy this story that we're a part of. Fair enough? Okay. So the early church was a unique kind of human community. It really defied all categories. It was persecuted, and it was fruitful because it was offensive, and it was beautiful. Okay? It was persecuted because it was offensive. The idea of the church was offensive. The things the church believed was offensive. And it grew incredibly quickly because it was attractive and beautiful and inviting and something that people wanted to be a part of. Uh, it was liberal and conservative. It was powerless and it was powerful. Uh, it didn't fit into any man-made categories. It was something that people had never seen before, never experienced before. It, was, it wasn't like comparing apples and oranges. It was, it was like comparing apples with something that you don't even know. You don't even know what it is. And I just want to say to you that God ordained things, and please hear this. If you're taking notes, you should write this down. God ordained things don't fit into man-made categories. And the more God ordained things begin to fit into man-made categories, the less anointing there are on them. You aren't supposed to be able to fit the church into a category. <laughs> you aren't supposed to be able to say, oh, that's a, that's a conservative church, that's a liberal church, that's a hipster church, that's a multicultural church. It's just supposed to be that you're supposed to look at and say, I don't really have anything to compare that to. And one of my great concerns about the church is that it's very easy to identify homogenous people groups in the church today. It's very easy to look and say, oh, I, I know what that is. You're not supposed to be able to look at the church and say, I know what that is. And so the, the early church was, was new. It was new because it was in this community that, especially in spiritual terms, was very static. You were born into faith. You were born into religion. And Christianity comes around, and, and people are making claims about this carpenter who died and then rose again, and he's actually God, and he ascended back to the Father, and now the Holy Spirit, and there's fire on their foreheads, and they're speaking in tongues, and people are getting healed, and, and, and people who have been a part of, of mainstream religiosity in pagan Rome are leaving everything that they have and becoming a part of this Christian community and selling everything they have and giving it to strangers that they hadn't otherwise knew. The, the church benefited from the, the newness, the distinction, the originality uh, of the church. 
The thing that the church needed was, uh, was testimony, and the thing that the church needed was, was time. Testimony to prove their claims in their life and time for people to be able to engage with it. And because of that, the early church had a very distinct temperament. And that temperament was that they were patient. They were very, very patient. So let me, let me say a couple things to you that maybe you didn't, you didn't know. The early church did not encourage their church members to spread the gospel. Wasn't, wasn't a part of it. The Great Commission was not an evangelism pep rally. It was actually mostly used as a proof that the Trinity was true. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They didn't look at it and say, okay, guys, out you go. Bring lots of people to church. They, they didn't do that. They said, hey, look at, look at God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The apostles in the minds of the early church were not like the rock star evangelists who are in charge of spreading the faith. They were more like bishops who were supposed to protect the apostolic truth, who were supposed to make sure that the purity of the gospel message stayed pure for as long as possible. That's what the apostles were supposed to do. Uh, the early Christian church did not open their worship service to the public. It was only Christians. If you weren't a Christian, you weren't allowed to come in, and becoming a member was very difficult uh, it created a lot of problems, especially in a shame-honor culture, which the Middle East is. You don't just hop from church to church to church. You're leaving your identity to become a Christian. It's the reason that baptism in those days was, was such a powerful kind of line of demarcation. Because when you went public with your faith, you were saying to everybody, I reject I reject this culture, I reject my identity, I reject, and in a shame on our culture, and this still happens today, people come public with their faith, and in that culture, that family has to restore honor by killing that person. You know, we kind of, yay, baptisms. No, no, baptisms and going public with your faith has been a radical thing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and becoming a member of a church meant you had to get baptized you had to go public and it took months if not years to become a member of a church you didn't go to grow track in four solid weeks which y'all still complain about right four weeks yeah when you read through the early church fathers you see almost no references to evangelism in fact, kind of the three main authors, Tertullian, Cyprian, and Augustine, wrote nothing about evangelism, wrote a lot about patience. Wrote a lot about patience. And do let me say this to you, that the Bible never talks about the gospel as transactional. The Bible never says, you don't want to go here when you die, do you? No. Then pray this prayer and we'll give you this. Never says that. Doesn't talk about it in a manufacturing sense, in a mathematical sense, in an equational sense. It talks about it like farming. Realize that this is an agrarian culture. You're talking to people who are very aware with how long it takes for fruit to be planted and harvested and realized. And the Bible talks more about this painstaking, patient testimony that takes time but works if God's people will commit themselves to it. The Bible never talks about get as many people in the room as possible, preach the gospel as simply as possible, make it as easy as possible for them to walk the aisle, have them sign a card, follow up with them, and tell them to come to a new members class. It's not how it worked. And I'm not saying that they're right and we're wrong. I'm just saying they had a different perspective of it. The early church did not grow because of its great preaching. 
It did not grow because of its great services, its great systems, its great programs, its great curriculum, its great discipleship path, its great leadership, its great worship. And if I could be more specific, it didn't grow because of people from my spot in this room. The early church did not grow because of guys like me. It grew because of guys like you. The early church didn't grow because they had professional Christians who studied during the week and came in and fed the sheep. No, the sheep fed themselves. And they bore witness to who Jesus was in their life and their in their neighborhoods and in their workplace, and over time, with a patient testimony, people said, that's different, and I want it in mass. In mass. It, it grew from, from Christians who believed the Great Commission wasn't for them, but for, for them. And that the Holy Spirit wasn't, wasn't for them, but was in them. And they lived in a place, listen, that they didn't think was for them. They thought they were for the place. The early Christians didn't think Raytown was for them. They thought they were for Raytown. Didn't think Lee Summit was for them. Blue Springs, Independence, Kansas City, Grandview, Peculiar, Overland Park, Lenexa. Hey, if you're a Christian, those things aren't for you. We complain about them. Why are the taxes so expensive? Why are the lights so long? Why are the schools so terrible? Hey, you're there for that. Not that for you, if you're a Christian. You're a sojourner. You're, you're passing through. And the early Christians believed that the place they lived, they were there for the place. And so they didn't get caught up in a lot of the stuff. They didn't get as worried every four years about a lot of the stuff. Because they're like, no, no, I'm, I'm here for you. Now, what's interesting about this is... is is this is something that I can't believe for you. Everything that I just said. I can't, I can't believe it for you. The Holy Spirit has to do a work in your heart at a convictional level, at the level of you feeling like you are called to your life. You are called to your neighborhood. You are called to your workplace. It's not there for you. You're there for it. It will take time. You have to bear witness over time with testimony of who Jesus is. Transactional evangelism may have worked in a time and place. It works less and less and less now. And while the church is panicking, why aren't people getting saved? We're not going back to the scripture and say, well, how did people get saved originally? And so I want to talk to you about the values of the early church. I just want to tell you their story. And I want you to understand that everything that they did, they did because they believed the Bible taught them to do it. Okay? And each thing that they did created distinction from the surrounding community. In other words, their beliefs were different, their convictions were different, so their behaviors were different. Because of why? Because of this. Okay? And I, I want to tell you that uh, the things that they did uh, offended a lot of people and attracted a lot of people. And I just want to start by saying the church isn't very good at this anymore. We're not very good at being offensive and attractive. Sometimes we're offensive, but not attractively. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and sometimes we're attractive simply because we're not willing to be offensive. And so we want to get to this spot where the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, where our convictions and our, and our literacy around God's Word and, and, and our walking with God and the testimony that we're bearing witness to is both confusing and distinct and sometimes attractive, but y'all have something that, that I don't... I, I want you to be able to attractively confront, and I want you to not be able to really verbally confront as much as 
convictionally, behaviorally, gently, patiently bear witness incarnationally to who Jesus is. Okay? So we're going to talk about five things today. And I'm just going to tell you right now that in our culture, at least two of the things I'm going to talk about are very controversial. I want you to do your very best to uh, ignore the controversy and just hear from the Holy Spirit today, okay? I'm going to tell you what they were. I'm going to tell you why they were in that context. I'm going to tell you why I think they were powerful then and why I think they're powerful now. But I just want you to understand that if you just bear witness to these things, have conviction around these things, it's going to make you distinct from almost everybody else you know. And I think that's a good thing. Not a comfortable thing, but a good thing. And I need you to accept the fact that if you're going to be a fruitful Christian in a post-religious age, you should expect to have some discomfort. If you're not willing to have discomfort around your faith, you're not going to be a very fruitful person. You're not going to be a, be, be a very fruitful follower of Jesus. You're going to be like that servant who buried their talent in the yard. Okay? You ready? Here we go. And, and some of these, the way I'm, I'm going to frame you and say, that's not controversial, but just hang in there. We'll get there. First conviction is that uh, everybody was welcome in the early church. Ev everybody was welcome. This church was multi-everything. Multiracial, multicultural, multigenerational, multi-class, co-gender. Uh, and this was a culture that was, was diverse in a melting pot only by proximity, meaning we lived beside each other, but it actively rejected diversity relationally. So just because I'm living next to somebody who doesn't look like me, talk like me, think like me, doesn't mean I have to embrace living next to them. And so in Rome at this time, in the Holy Land at this time, all kinds of different people, lots of different moving people groups, but there was no embrace of diversity. There was only observation that you were different. And it separated citizens by value through any type of measurement. Okay, so... it. If you're rich, you're better. If you're a certain skin color, you're better. If you have power, you're better. If you're a certain gender, you're better. You see, these things don't go away. We still do this. Okay? And it is Christianity, especially the early church, that welcomed literally everybody to have a relationship with Jesus. Regardless of their skin color, regardless of their income, regardless of their status, Regardless of where they were from, regardless of where they knew, regardless of their orientation, come on, I'm going to push you a little bit, everybody was welcome to Jesus. It was actually Christianity that introduced the idea that we call human rights. It didn't exist before Christianity. And this is one of the things that I want you to be proud of and I want you to be instructed by. Human rights are a Christian idea. They're a biblical idea. Civil rights are a biblical idea. That's why it's wild that now we have some Christians. You know, this, this is our heritage, y'all. That everybody was welcome uh, to Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. Now, why, why is it powerful? Because the gravitational pull of the human heart is exclusion. That's why, it's, that's why it's powerful. And you feel it, don't you? Yeah, you feel, you know the rooms that you're not invited into. You know the places that you aren't welcome. You know the neighborhoods that you're going to stand out. You, you know the people that feel like they're better than you. They knew and you know, but we have a father who is unconditionally loving. We have a father who invites us not into the room, but into the family. 
we have a father who doesn't only invite us, but does everything necessary to knock down the barriers that keep us at arm's length. He sends his son to this earth to move into a neighborhood that he was not welcome. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, because they weren't, he wasn't one of them. He wasn't what they expected, and the, the gravitational pull of the human heart is to exclude what's not like us. And so God says, no, 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 uh, I am, I'm a God who welcomes, I'm a God who invites, I'm a God who includes, I'm a God who does everything necessary to make it possible for all different kinds of people to come into the family. Shouldn't it be then, right, that the people of God should be this way as well? Now, in the book of Acts, this didn't come without controversy. It didn't come easily. When you read through the book of Acts, you know that one of the major conflicts in the early church was who they were going to let into the church. And all the Jews were like, yeah, we're good, but these Gentiles ain't coming in. And then a guy by the name of Saul, who turned into a guy by the name of Paul, had a face-to-face confrontation with a guy by the name of Peter and said, no, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And this upset the, salt, the social standing, social culture, social flow in every possible way. A community where literally everyone is gladly welcome. A community where you can be as far from God, as angry as God, as distant from God, as beat up by the world, and still be welcomed gladly, and still be greeted warmly, and still be allowed to come all the way in, not just, hey, you can sit at the back in, in shame and dishonor. No, you can come all the way in and you can be a part because, because nobody in this room came to this country club. We all came broken and sick and we just got to the hospital before you. And as good as some of, a, some of our churches are, and as good as some of us are, you, we still have people who aren't welcome here. We do. We still have people who aren't welcome here, and this is the controversy of it, right? You think you have a good reason why they aren't welcome here, and I'm just telling you you don't. I'm just, I'm just telling you that you don't, and, I, and I'm saying that actually the people that you don't think are welcome here are the people who most desperately need to be here, okay? And the only apple cart that that's upset, that upsets is ours. That's the, that's the only people that are uncomfortable with this idea, the people who who got here first and think they got themselves here. You didn't get yourself here. God got you here. And I'm not just talking about Graceway. I'm talking about relationship. I'm talking about community. I'm talking about faith. I'm talking about all those things. You didn't do that. So how, friends, then can we say that somebody else who doesn't yet have that doesn't get to have what you have when you didn't earn what you have? Second value of the early church was that they were practically pro-life. You all right? Yes. It's funny. I was talking to uh, I was talking to one of our pastors, and he said he said <laughs> he said saying pro life out loud is like saying Black Lives Matter out loud. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that it's like are we allowed to say pro life in church? Yeah. So I don't. I say practically pro life because I want to distinguish from politically pro life. I want to I distinguish from protesting pro-choice establishments pro-life. That's, that's not what the early church was about. Ab- abortion, as we know it, wasn't common in the first century. Uh, what was common was a practice called exposure. 
And the idea was that somebody would have a baby that they didn't want, either because it was illicit or undesired or with somebody they didn't want to be in a relationship with, all the same reasons, okay? And they would have the baby, and they would take the baby to the city dump. They would leave the baby in the city dump, and the baby would have one of three things happen to it. Number one, obviously, it would die. Uh, Or worse, it would be picked up by one of two people groups. Uh, One was a slave trader, and the other was a pimp. And so what did the church do? The church started going to the city dumps and racing the pimps and the slave traders to the babies. Practically pro-life. Now this is powerful, right? This is powerful because, because it, isn't, it isn't a belief. It isn't a perspective. It's a behavior. And God help us. I wish, I wish that we were a little less belief pro-life and a little more behavior pro-life. God help us, because, because it's free for you to vote pro-life. It wasn't free for them to do what they were doing. And, and even though I respect your perspective, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, I started with, you're welcome here, we don't even have to agree. Okay? We're all under God's word, and, and I want you to get under God's word as you best understand it. Um, but but I, I do just wish that those of us who, who were pro-life were actually behaviorally and whole pro-life. What do I mean? I mean, if you're pro-life, would you be willing to walk with a woman who sees abortion as her only option? Would you, be, would you be willing to get her to Jesus free of guilt and shame? Would you be passionate about the economics and the brokenness that regularly put certain communities at higher risk and at higher rates? Would you be as passionate about the economics as you are about the politics? Would you be as passionate about the family as you are about who you're voted for that you think is going to fix and legislate the morality of these issues? Come on. The early church was practically pro-life. The early church was about fostering and adopting. And I'll just tell you, I talk to families who foster and adopt, and, and they don't feel like the community of faith comes alongside them. Because we don't, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do with y'all. But you can still be present and not know what to do. And I wonder, you know, if, if some of you might even have calling on your life to be practically pro-life and to begin to foster and to begin to adopt. I mean, I, I would love it. I would love it for the church to be the place where adoption is the epicenter. I would love it for, for all of the, those of us who are pro-life to, to be less about what we put in the ballot box and more about who we invite into our home. Yeah. Now, this, this, this behavior came from a belief, right? It came from a belief that everybody was created in God's image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and that they had inherent value. And this is, this is powerful. This is so powerful. Because in a culture that does not believe in or glorify God, you have to come up with a way to judge value. And how do we, how do we judge value? Productivity. Success, standing, right? Yeah, we, we, we try to emulate and we celebrate people who are successful, who can do something we can't do, who have something that we don't have. And we look at them and we say, I, I need to figure out a way to get in the room with them so I can have what they have and be what they are and, and do what they do. And our culture is around this. 
is, is, is entirely around this. I was in a room last night. We, we went to an event. I didn't actually really know what it was, but it was kind of a fundraising event for some of the Chiefs players. And I was, I, we had a great time. I enjoyed being there. Uh, was with some, some good friends. But it was amazing to watch the flow of energy to all of the celebrity football players. It was amazing to watch what people were wearing to try to stand out, how people were talking, all the pictures, and <laughs> It's amazing to me how, how we idolize these football players and then are shocked when they're broken human beings. But, but this is the culture that we, we live in, right? But, but what do you do when you struggle to be productive in this culture? What do you do when you're, when you're not born into standing? What do you do when you have some failures? What do you do when you feel like your life in and of itself needs to be validated with something so that somebody will look at you and say, you're worthwhile? We live in a culture that dismisses the value of life before birth and at the end of life. We debate whether or not somebody's life is valuable before they draw their first breath. And then eventually when you become less productive, we put you in a house someplace and visit you once a year. That's what our culture does. And this is the values of this culture. And the early church said, no, our God says that he created you valuable. How valuable? Valuable enough to die for. Valuable enough to die for, worth loving, worth saving, worth defending, worth sacrificing for. Worth sacrificing for. Number three, the church was radically generous. They were radically generous. Acts 2.45, they were selling their positions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all. So we have these economies, right? These ways that we view. And, and let me just say, this isn't capitalism. It's also not socialism that says i got to take from you to give to somebody else. And it's also not communism. We just put it all in a pot in some powerful figure. What this is, is voluntary, generous, spiritual community. These are people who believe that the stuff that they had, they were given. And it made sense to them that they give it to somebody else so that, so that we could all have. Listen, I just want to say to you, all of these things get politicized. And they're not political, they're spiritual, fundamentally. And, and, and when we read about the book of Acts, sometimes we bring a perspective to it that we label them as something that they were not. These were people who loved one another more than they loved their stuff. That's what they were. These were people who, who didn't believe that their stuff was theirs, didn't believe that their stuff made them valuable, didn't believe that their stuff meant that they were here instead of here, but actually believed that everything they had had been given to them, and that they should use what had been given to them to bless others. And the thing that's crazy about it is they didn't just do this to the people in the church. They didn't just do it to the people in the church. They did it to the people in their community. In 252 AD, one of the epicenters for Christian persecution was a city by the name of Carthage, and a devastating plague hit the city of Carthage. And all of the healthy individuals fled in droves and left only the sick and the poor and the, the less mobile behind. Does this sound familiar? And Cyprian, the bishop, drew all the Christians into the center of town where they had been persecuted. 
And he said, if we're going to do what Jesus did so that through his poverty we might be rich, I call you to give personal and financial aid, care and comfort to all according to their need, not their faith. But these are the people who are killing us. These are the people who are mocking us. Yeah, but that's who our Savior is. About a century later, the Roman emperor Julian at the time tried to revive pagan religion. He eventually acknowledged defeat and in a letter to his friend wrote, whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. These impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also, welcoming them into their agape. And Julian's dying words were, you have won, Galilean. Expressing his resignation, res- recognition that after his death, Christianity would become the empire state religion, which it did. The early church believed 1 Chronicles 29. Listen to this. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you. And of your own we have given you, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all of our fathers were. Our days on this earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. All this stuff is yours. Now remember that the early church didn't believe that they were trying to get people off the earth and into heaven. They believed they were trying to bring a kingdom. And they believed that generosity was one of the means by which the kingdom was brought. They believed that valuing human life was one of the the convictions of the kingdom that they were trying to bring. They they believed that everybody was able to get into the kingdom, that Jesus died for everybody. And therefore, the church should represent everybody. Scott Scott Saul says, Christianity always flourishes most as a life-giving minority. Not as a powerful majority. This is the reason, guys, that I harp so much on it's not our job to try to keep a majority. In fact, historically, when Christianity has been the majority, it has been the least fruitful. This is just the facts. It's been the most fruitful when it has been a generous, radically pro-life, radically inclusive, radically sacrificial minority. It is through subversive countercultural acts of love, justice, and service for the common good that Christianity has always gained the most ground. You do see then why there's so much spiritual warfare around your stuff. Yeah? You do see then why there's so much political vitriol around human life. You do see then why you knowing who you wouldn't want to sit beside in this room is not It's not a sociological issue, it's a spiritual issue. Number four, are you still with me? Okay. Monogamous marriages. I'm going to get you today. I'm going to get you. (laughs) Roman culture insisted that married women of social status abstain from sex outside of marriage. Women had to be monogamous. Men, however... It was expected that men, even married men, would have sex with people lower on the status ladder. Slaves, prostitutes, and children. This wasn't only allowed, it was unavoidable. It was societally expected. This was in part because sex in that culture was always 
considered an expression of one's social status. The church comes along and forbids all sex outside of heterosexual marriage. And this would have been mind-blowing. And Paul doesn't just say that. He goes on in the book of Ephesians, and he says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also the wife should submit in everything to her husband. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be, don't be fraternizing. Don't, don't, be, don't be going out on the weekends. Don't, don't be trying to build your family outside your family. Husband, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church comes along and says, I, I, I understand how we've been doing it. I just want you to know that you need to be pure, you need to be chaste, you need to be a one-woman kind of man and a one-man kind of woman. And more than that, you need to submit to one another, you need to prefer one another, you need to invest in one another, you need to prioritize one another. Why? Because this thing is a picture of Jesus and his bride. Right? Further, sex, the early church believed, was not about status or self-expression. This is just who I am. No. It wasn't about appetite. It was about giving oneself to another in covenant. That's what sex was. Self-control in this context was what led to freedom. Freedom isn't you get to do whatever you want. Freedom is knowing with whom you're going to choose to do. And fulfillment doesn't come from as many as possible. Fulfillment comes as committing yourself to one person for the rest of your life. The message wasn't to be prudish or patriarchal. It was to be flourishing and free and fulfilling. Sex was never, the message was never about stop it, it's not good for you. It was about it's great for you. This way. But if you do it another way, you're going to like it for just a little bit and then you're going to hate it. And the Bible's true, isn't it? Now why is this powerful? Because relationships have one of two centers. The center is either the relationship is for me or the relationship is for you. And Jesus came to us and gave himself for us. Jesus was given for us and gave himself for us. And a biblical covenant is you will be most blessed when you covenant to somebody. Say, I promise you, regardless of what you do. And something gets grown in your purity and in your covenant and in your sanctity. And something gets grown in you that cannot be grown any other way. And something gets stolen from you and destroyed in you and obliterated in you when you do it the world's way, which is whatever you want for status, for fame, for interest, for self-appetite, for self-expression. Those things are destroying you. That's what the church would say. And so they came along and said, we serve a covenant God. Put yourself in covenant to one person so the world can see what covenant looks like. This is why. Marriage has so much spiritual warfare in it and on it because of what it represents. And then number five was an ethic of forgiveness. In Acts chapter four, 
the early disciples are being persecuted, they're being beat, they're being thrown in prison, and they come out and they say this prayer to the Lord. Now, just stop for a second. We're, we're almost out of time. If you have been beat for your faith, thrown in prison for your faith, interrogated for your faith, you come out and you're talking to God and you say what? Okay, so I'll just tell you what I say. God, I need you to kill everybody in there. <laughs> That's what I say. Listen to the, listen to the disciples' prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let us not get stopped by this. Let, let you become more famous through this. And there's countless stories of persecution in the early church. And I just want you to understand that, that you are living in the most persecuted church in the history of the church right now. Not this church. We don't even know what's going on in the church. Persecution is still very much a thing, but here's what I need you to understand. In the early church, and this is the most powerful by far, persecution was met with forgiveness. Persecution was met without retaliation. Persecution was, was met with gladness. Now, why is that powerful? Well, one, because it exemplifies Jesus who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But more than that, listen, forgiveness is about power. Forgiveness is about power. Retaliation is you trusting in yours. When you just have to say it. When you just have to post it, when you just have to do the thing, because they did the thing, so you have to do the thing. That's you taking your power and trusting that your power and your ability to retaliate will even the score and heal something in you. And does it ever work? Never works. Forgiveness is about power. Retaliation is about trusting in yours. Forgiveness is about trusting in God's. And so many times, listen, we defend our lack of forgiveness but there is no defense for a Christian. There's no defense. Now, I'm not saying that relationships don't change, boundaries don't get in place, that you might need to leave a relationship because of abuse or something. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about what happens in your heart, about what happened. And there is no excuse. There is no defense. It's not easy. You're going to feel like you're dying. But when we forgive somebody, the greatest testimony of the gospel is you're trusting the power of God and forgiving the person who failed you. There is no apologetic more clear. There is no distinction more obvious than people who will say, I respond to your hurt of me with grace. Here's the early church. It's three things. The early church is a group of people who believed that they were supposed to bring a kingdom. Not send people to a kingdom, bring a kingdom. They're a group of people who were indwelt with and dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're a group of people who, in our language, uh, would take the love challenge. Listen to who they loved. They loved all people groups, regardless of economic standing, affiliation, gender, or race. They loved the defenseless and the marginalized. They loved their community and their neighbor. They loved their spouse and their family and they love their enemies. And over time, 
this testimony bore fruit. Trying to bring a kingdom. The kingdom isn't just for you. The kingdom is for everybody. You're indwelt with and empowered by something otherworldly. And you love selflessly, unconditionally, anybody that you come in touch with. And over time, how often? Day by day. Day by day. Day by day. The church was built. That's, that's our story. That's our heritage. That's our family tree. And I love it. This is the community that I want to be a part of. This is the community that I'm proud to be a part of. Not so much this community as we're seeing it happen right now, this community that we see about in the Bible. This is what I want. This is, this is what I want this place to be known for. Bringing a kingdom empowered by God's Holy Spirit, loving absolutely everyone so that the gospel can be brought to bear in Kansas City. Okay. I want you to stand up. Let me pray for you. God, we love you today. And God, I thank you for the story, the testimony that is really, it's our family. This is the Ancestry.com of Graceway. And God, I, I, really, I really love our family. And God, I do just pray that you would allow our hearts to just simplify what you've called us to, to just bring this kingdom, be empowered by your Holy Spirit, and to love people remarkably well, have that testimony remarkably well over time. And you'll save people, and you'll grow people, and you'll be at work in our midst in ways that are unique to us and distinct from our culture. Lord, we need you. So much controversy, so much division, so much confusion around the church today. I know it's a lot today, God, but would you just clarify some things in our heart, inspire some things in our hearts, invite us into the story of the church as you see it. And as you invite us, would you invite the lost? Would you invite the orphans? Would you invite the disenfranchised and the marginalized and the hurting? Would you invite our enemies, not just to this place, but into this family? in a way that can only be you. Make us the church, God, as you see it, for your glory and for our joy. We love you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Thanks for hanging in there with me today. Growth track is that way. Generosity at any door. I love you. Have a great week.